Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Two weeks ago, I was uh, at an event called Revitalize in uh, Halifax. And before the sermon, as it leads into the sermon, I want to say something about Revitalize. It's an event that's been held probably for a decade uh, in Edmonton and London, Ontario, this time in it. Halifax just after the fires and we enjoyed great rain there and it was an opportunity to hear uh, church leaders talk about what's revitalizing them in their ministry and for lay people and clergy to come together to consider uh, the church and the state of the church and what is needed at this time and it was an opportunity for me to sit and also to speak and uh, I want to say just a few things about the context of which we were in I'll invite you to the next slide uh, I think the first speaker up um, was talking about a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was a German theologian who uh, was executed during uh, the Second World War as a person who was standing up against the Nazis. And in his presentation, he was inviting us to think about uh, um, sort of proto-Nazism and then the context of our day. And I'll invite you to this slide. He was talking about what was happening just before the war and then I want to see if there's any parallels for you, maybe not. Private enforcers at political rallies, discrediting of the free press, hypermilitarism, xenophobia, tolerance for attack on the marginalized, appeals to glorious or mythic past, strong arm rhetoric, threats to crush the enemies, thinly veiled racism, open contempt, contempt for immigrants, Promise of future greatness via the magical impact of a great leader. Insistence on allegiance to symbols of patriotism. Threats to undermine the judiciary system. Discrediting of elected officials, bodies. Attempt to circumvent legislative process. Relentless blaming of foreign powers for domestic woes. And demands for unwavering loyalty to the leader. I don't know about you, but I saw some parallels. And it was a beautiful look at the spirituality and theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he was speaking to that time and that day. Perhaps he'll say more about what he said then. We also had a beautiful theologian from Halifax who was one of the mystics, and it was great to be in her presence as she invited us to this beautiful phrase, to arrive at our center, we must touch infinity. To arrive at our center, we must touch infinity. Have you ever been in that place where you felt like you touched infinity, where time stood still, where you are awakened and surprised, whether it was in a meditation or a stillness, or whether you were literally shaken, shaken to your knees to that moment of touching infinity? And she says, there is the God who, I love this line, apprehends us. I, I deeply want to be apprehended by God. I'm like, bring it on, apprehend me. Then we had a beautiful presentation by a gentleman named Lloyd, who I'd never met, from Zimbabwe, who's the minister in Manning, Alberta, who talked about the parallels between the TRC in South Africa and the Canadian reality, and has done a doctoral thesis on how important these four things are in truth and reconciliation, truth-telling, forgiveness, justice and healing 
And in his telling of this sacred story, it was a beautiful way to sit and listen and look again at the parallels. My friend Sue, who I've known for 40 years, the sex therapist minister we've had here, Sexy Sue, she did a presentation on sex and spirituality are the best bedfellows. What she's talking about here, she did a great presentation on how sex is good for your life and your longevity, and so is spirituality. A presentation I'm glad to share with you. She was talking about the benefits of sex till you're 90, in your 90s, she says in her work, and how that journey is the same for spirituality and how it leads to great health. There was a minister in Southern Alberta who's Korean, and she spoke about what it was like to come to Southern Alberta during the pandemic as a Korean woman in ministry and experienced the racism of our Canadian culture toward her. But she danced and she sang and she taught with such infectious joy that I said to her, we're gonna do a pulpit exchange and I'm gonna get you to infect our congregation with your Korean theology and faith. We also heard from a Hindu Christian who works in Vancouver who talked about the influx of 100,000 a year immigrants to our culture, bringing with them different religious practices and understandings, which invites us not to compete, but to welcome understanding. As I would say it this way, it's like there's a mountain, and if you think of transcendence, there's a Sikh path and a Hindu path and a Christian path and a Jewish path, just different ways up, if you will, to transcend the same mountain. But his, his indictment of us as a Canadian culture about how we see other religions was so powerful and lovely. The last speaker I hope to invite to Calgary is the first graduate, I believe, at Atlantic School of Theology as a trans person. And they thought, talked about the theology of, trans, of the trans people when we come to scripture. You see, we all bring a context whether it's liberation theology or feminist theology or Christian theology or trans theology, what eyes do we have or lenses and how do we read the Bible? And so I hope that they will come to be among us. I had an opportunity to speak at that and I talked about uh, the presentation I did with you about the Kino Center for Wounded and Weary Leaders and the op how I was helped through my wounded and weariness when I was there. Also in the evening, yes, I got the opportunity to play pool which was one of my favorite nights, well, every four, night, every four nights I was there, and to tour Atlantic School of Theology. And what I came away from the week was, I've been living in a bubble. The bubble of this church, the bubble of progressive theology, the bubble of people who are engaged, people who wanna come and learn and grow and live their faith, and that's not the reality of many of the congregations in our church. But also while we were there, we looked at, and I'll invite you to see this slide, just quickly, this, um, the symbol of the United Church Bold Discipleship ones, what I'm looking for. This is um, a statement about the mission and value of the United Church of Canada. They developed this uh, three principles. We are to be about bold discipleship, daring justice, and deep spirituality. Well, I have lots of problems about how they came to this. This is the mantra of your church. And in that, I looked up what it meant. And this is a, quite a quote as it speaks about discipleship, which I want to talk about today. To be a disciple of Jesus suggests that we must study his life and teaching and reflect on what we have learned in our life and living. 
This understanding calls into question any belief that coming to worship service alone once a week is sufficient to learn about Jesus. It also begs the question of the state of the Bible study and other such gatherings in the church. At the same time, the word bold describes the type of disciple we aspire to be, not timid or cowardly. The bold disciple does not claim to have the direct hotline to Jesus, yet a bold disciple is willing to attempt to live what they have learned. And so my question for the day is with those who are near you and you're invited to talk to move or stand or get coffee if you don't like the question, is really, um, when you hear the word disciple, what do you think about? And I'll talk about that. When you disciple, what's your reaction to that word? So you got basically a minute. What do you think about that word, disciple? How does it hit you? Just two minutes. Okay, thank you. Old discipleship is part of the mantra and the new logo of the United Church. Let us pray. May the wrestling of our minds and hearts allow us to be hot or cold and not lukewarm. Be in our minds and our hearts, our hands and our feet as we wrestle and wonder. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. Amen. A number of years ago, a man named Marcus Borg wrote a book called Speaking Christian. Why Christian words have lost their meaning and power. Marcus Borg is also the one that wrote the book called Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. When he came out in the early 90s, he's really what kept me grounded in the church. He was the theologian in the wisdom tradition that could keep me here when I wanted to run the other way and throw in the towel. In the book, Speaking Christian, he looks at these churchy words that you all know and perhaps fear. Words like salvation, evil, sin, born again, heaven, and hell. And what he does is he looks at their original context, looking for the deep relevance that they had and how somehow that relevance has been lost. And so when we were looking at this sermon, I thought, I got to go right there. And literally when I went home and peeled through my books, it was there and I flipped through, but the word disciple wasn't there. 
darn. I think, and I wish he could have written about that. In his writing, he's always trying to help us see anew for the first time something we assumed or learned. He likes to redeem, refurbish, and rehabilitate words that get stuck, words that we want to spit out of our mouth and never say again. He doesn't want to dumb it down. He wants us to wisen up. At our worship planning meeting, which is Tuesdays, we gather in a conversation for the first time to look at these issues that we're going to talk about on Sunday. So this has been ruminating since that time. And when I said to the group who are online and in person, when you hear the word disciple, what's your reaction to that word? It was quiet. And I immediately said, I have an aversion to that word. I don't like the word. It feels smug and narrow. It feels like it's an accomplishment that someone gets and shines their halo and puts their degree on the wall and says, that's who I am. And then as I began to think about it, there was something about it. I wondered if it was the context at which I might have heard it. And images of things like truck convoys came to mind when there were people speaking that language in a way that I just couldn't resonate with. For me, it was an aversion. For some who were former evangelicals in the gathering, there was a sense it was a trigger. There was something about it that triggered them to the past, and, and it was associated with a path of things you got to do to get to heaven. Images like you're not enough, you're not worthy enough. If you were a real disciple, they would say. And so there was aversion and trigger, but there was also in this conversation some who said it's a beautiful word. Some said it's my identity. It's meaningful and beautiful, a liberating word. It's guiding and purposeful, and it allows me a path to follow, a beautiful, beautiful word, which then sent me out of worship planning to the tennis court, which is a great way for a conversation, and I asked my friend who was there, how do you see this word? They said, I see it as passive, and it speaks of proselytizing. Another person who I met with since then said, it's a word that feels like non-thinking, like I'm a zombie. At the end of our conversation of worship planning, some wise soul in the room says that we need to rehabilitate these words, and I think that's true. It's not unlike David Gray, who's a friend who interviewed David Johnson, who's the Governor General of Canada, who said in that conversation on his book on empathy, when he was working with Indigenous people, the first thing the Governor General had to do is unlearn. Unlearn what they brought to the table. And I think so much of what Borg is saying is the same kind of thing. It's an unlearning of assumptions and then be open to a new understanding. So for me, when I get stuck and there's no Borg definition, I go to the internet and I write to several other preachers. And this week, all it said was help. And then I asked, how does the word disciple fit in your theology? And now the word disciple has a beautiful uh, origin. It means learner. If you're a disciple, you're a learner or a student. 
and in the sense of being a learner and a student, invites what I would call humility and curiosity. Yes, I want to learn. Yes, I want to take this down. Yes, I want to learn how to sing. Yes, I want to learn how to dance. So there's a sense of taking in the wisdom of another as a disciple, and I like that. My minister friend in Toronto said it's a baseball word and has no use. It's churchy. doesn't resonate anymore. Another said, it's a hard word to redeem, but perhaps it's possible. And what he said was so key to me in my now understanding. The key is we're not meant to stop at being a disciple. You don't get there and shine your halo. In fact, it's from there that you move. He said, really, disciple means that we're an apprentice, we're an understudy, we're learning all that needs to go into this so that therefore we can move forward. The women in the conversation had a slightly different take that it said it's a reminder of what I got to do. Another said, there's a difference in this word because it's about discipline and boundaries, and that's helpful when I get going in my life. Richard Topping, who's the principal at Vancouver's Theology, also helped me get a glimpse of what they're teaching in Vancouver School of Theology. And he says that the key thing to remember when you look at the word disciple is that it's about movement, not stopping. It's not an end in itself. It's a stop along the way. He said, we teach our, our students this. They are, they are called as we are all called. They are built up, which is what discipleship is. And then they are sent out. We often get stuck at being built up. And rarely do people take what they learn in church or temple out into the world for transformation. Malcolm Sinclair, who is preacher at Metropolitan Church in Toronto, who's certainly somebody I follow in my life, his theology, says that Jesus eventually kicks the disciples out of the nest. Parents might understand that if you have kids at home that need a kick out of the nest. But what he's saying is eventually Jesus says, you've been hanging around listening to me long enough, now out you go, out the door. And he says it gently by saying, I no longer call you servants but friends. There's a trust in this. It's a trust that you know enough now to go, to live, to be what I've tried to share, what I've pointed about God, you now know, and it's time for you to trust yourself to be yourself in the world. You see, I don't think we're called to be Jesus. We are called to be ourself with what we know in the world. And that's how we are practitioners in all of this. Malcolm says in the end, it's called about this, to heal, feed, visit, and struggle against evil. In all of this, there is a movement to do. Essentially, it moves us to the end of the, the Gospel of Matthew, where basically Jesus says, go and do likewise. And as I sat there dribbling around and wondering and scribbling about what I would say, I thought about Jesus and I thought, Jesus did it. Sure, he called 12 men and women to follow, to take them on a three-year trip. It wasn't hang out in a monastery and I'll tell you all the things you need to know. It was out on the street in the active world. It's when he comes along and he sees an argument about a group who are going to stone a woman caught in adultery. Where did the man go? The woman caught in adultery. And he has these beautiful words of wisdom. 
Whoever is without sin, you, cast the first stone. And he teaches them about forgiveness. Or when they're judgmental about uh, Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, and Jesus is coming to down and sees them up in the tree. Jesus, many want him for dinner, but he picks the guy that everybody shuns and puts up a tree to say, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Jesus widening the circle. Or when there are 5,000 people and the disciples say, send them all home, Jesus says, no, I'm pretty sure we got enough here if we share what we have. Or when he comes across someone who's blind, he says to them, do you want to see again? He doesn't assume they want to see. He poses the question, do you want to see again? And Jesus opens their eyes to a new reality. Or ultimately, it's the Matthew 25 gospel. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger, and you visited me. If you want to know what to do post-disciple, it is that, Jesus would say. Gently kicking them out of the nest and out the door to say, get on with it. So how does it look? And prime examples, I'll say. Someone shared this example to me. Apparently on March 14th at an NHL hockey game in Toronto, they were singing the American uh, National Anthem. And suddenly, at that moment, it, instead of stopping, the Canadians in the room or arena who had been learning this song their entire life carried that song to continue to be sung. And that's what it looks like to learn, and when the mic drops, continue, so the song goes on. That is living discipleship. I read this week, as I put newspaper and Bible together, a good conservative theologian, or sorry, politician, Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole said some very wise words. He said these words as he retires. We are becoming elected officials who judge our self-worth by how many likes and followers on social media, but not on how many lives we change in real life. That's fabulous to say it's not about the one-liner, that it's about the real lives we want to change. And that's what good politics, I would say, is. I remember a number of years ago when I lived in Burlington and there was a fire in Hamilton. And I remember in the media, they were surrounded because they were surprised that so many people that camp were helping this family who had lost their house. And one of them, media people put a mic to someone and said, why are you doing this? And the only reply this person had was this, it's my religion. That's the response to someone in trouble. It's my religion. It's like the community cupboard that's outside that's been moved. There are so many people who quietly and anonymously pull up in the dark and turn off their lights and open the cupboard and put in food and close it up and drive away. Taking care of people in this neighborhood who need basic food and care for those who are struggling in this time. It's like William, who leads Mindful Morning, saying that when he was going to be away for a few weeks, he asked seven volunteers to lead Mindful Morning, and they came in and they led the meditation in the morning because they've learned from the leader 
and in their discipleship could teach others mindful meditation. So you see, we all do it. When I gather with families at the time of a death of someone, I go through a series of questions, but ultimately I get to this question. What did the person who died teach you? What did the person who died teach you? And people will do, say various things like, they taught me to bake, <laughs> they taught me to quilt, they taught me to do my taxes, they taught me how to cut the grass, they taught me about honesty. And so I ask you today as a person, what do you teach by your mentorship of those who are observing you in your life? And I want to end with this beautiful parable that probably could have been the sermon, but I couldn't resist. From James Finley, The Path of Healing. In this story, a Christian hermit heard a knock at the door of his hermitage. When he opened the door, he saw mother and father and their young daughter. The parents apologized for intruding on the hermit's solitude but they said they had to ask him to pray over their daughter, whom they, as you can plainly see, an evil wizard had turned her into a donkey. Yes, I see, said the hermit, as he invited them to sit and come in. The hermit asked the parents to sit off to one side, and he asked the little girl if she was hungry, would she like something to eat? When she said she would like that, the hermit talked to her and prepared her a meal. Then as she ate, he continued talking to her, asking her questions about things that mattered to her. When the parents saw the love with which the hermit prepared the daughter some food and sincere affection in which he spoke with her, their eyes were opened. They suddenly realized that the wizard had not cast a spell on their daughter, turning her into a donkey. Rather, the wizard had cast a spell on them, leading them to believe their daughter was a donkey. And seeing that their daughter was truly a little girl they loved, they were filled with joy and tearfully embraced her. As the parents left with their daughter, they expressed their gratitude for what had happened. And their daughter was grateful as well, for it's hard being a little girl when your parents think you're a donkey. It is especially hard when you fall into shame-based suffering that comes when you start to believe that you are indeed a donkey your parents believe you to be. The deep healing that the little girl and her parents experienced in this story bears witness to the fact that it is through this sharing that deep healing happens. So, full-off confession. I'm a disciple and always will be. I'm a learner and always will be. And by the grace of God, I'll take what I've learned beyond these walls to the world because I believe that is really where the world needs God's love and transformation through you and 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 you, all of us. May we do so. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. 
We're really glad you're here, and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.